music can cause such havoc among us. <laughs> but there you are. Now, we want to continue the series we began last week from Isaiah chapter 52, but this morning we come to verse 1 through 3 in chapter 53. So, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah, continuing from uh, verse 13 through 15 of chapter 52, he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? Or, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. To put it another way, we did not care for him at all. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank you for your inspired word, a word written so long ago about our Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of the Lord, Help us this morning, we pray, as we come to this solemn passage. Indeed, all of Isaiah 53 is so solemn that our own hearts and minds might reflect back on the cost to Jesus Christ. That he made atonement for our sins. That he took our place. That he himself, in his own body on the tree, bore our sins. He has made sacrifice for our transgressions. He has laid down his life for our iniquities. And it pleased you, gracious Father, to do this to your Son. It's beyond our understanding. It's beyond our comprehension. But in it we see your great love, not only for your Son, but for your people. And we pray that we might have a rich, fresher understanding and revealing to us of your word this morning. And that the Holy Spirit would be the one to tear away our lethargy, our slothfulness at times, and burn our hearts within us like those disciples of long ago by your word, by its power. May Jesus himself be glorified as the word is proclaimed, for we ask it all in his name. Amen. 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 Now, as you know, from last week, last week formed the introduction to this section of Scripture that we, we commonly refer to as the suffering servant of the Lord, or the servant of Yahweh, the suffering servant of Yahweh. And those closing verses of chapter 52 form the introduction to really what we all know so well and love so much, Isaiah chapter 53. If you were going to memorize this passage, you should really begin in chapter 52, verse 13, because that belongs to the passage. And so we come this morning because in those previous verses, the prophet God himself, speaking through the prophet, has painted such a glorious and big and large, refreshing picture for us of the depths of the suffering of Messiah, of the servant of Yahweh. It's as if he came to a canvas as an artist, and with fresh paint at his disposal, he splashed upon the canvas the glorious truths that we discover and that we see, in fact, as they unfold just one verse after another in his description of the suffering servant of Yahweh. You remember back in chapter 52, verse 13, 
uh, that was all about the exaltation of the servant. My servant shall be high, shall be lifted up, shall be exalted. And then how the writer, how Isaiah plummets down in his description in verse 14 of chapter 52 and gives us his humiliation, the humiliation of the servant. That his form was unrecognizable. That his appearance was just so marred more than any other man. And then in the closing verse of chapter 52, he responds to the exaltation and to the humiliation of the servant and gives us the responses, two responses are given for us in, those, uh, in that verse to those two facts, the exaltation, the humiliation of the servant of Yahweh. Let me remind you that this is what we call a servant song. There are four servant songs in Isaiah. This is song number four. The others are, of course, in chapter 52, chapter 49, and chapter 50. And then beginning in 52, 13, through the end of chapter 53, 12, is the fourth servant song. So the subject of this passage is without question the servant of the Lord. If you look at chapter 52, verse 13, it talks about, Behold, my servant. And if you look at chapter 53, verse 11, it says, Out of his anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be justified or accounted righteous. So this is about my servant. This is about the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And Isaiah is giving for us in very graphic picture, form, language, descriptive language, he's presenting to us a picture of a person that is unrecognizable, that is unappealing, that has nothing in him that would attract you to him, yet he is described as the servant of God, the servant of the Lord, a picture of abject suffering, a picture of acute suffering, of pain beyond comprehension. Beyond understanding, this is the picture that the prophet Isaiah is revealing to us as he gives us these wonderful verses. And at the same time, as you read through these verses, you discover that this suffering that the servant undergoes is completely undeserved. Now you and I may deserve suffering at some time or another for whatever reason, for something we have done. But this servant is absolutely blameless. And yet he suffers such indignities and such shame. And the question we want to ask ourselves is why? Why does he suffer in such a way? And the passage, of course, is going to go on to tell us that he suffers on behalf of others. People who are called the many. He bore the transgressions of the many. That many might be accounted righteous. And so we discover here that the suffering belongs or the condemnation attached to the suffering really belongs to the many, to the people, not to the servant. Servant is blameless. We, the people, are uh, blameworthy. And so this is about an undeserved suffering, a suffering that should not have gone to such a servant such a glorious, righteous servant, as chapter 53, verse 11, describes him, the righteous one. He suffers then for the unrighteous. The Bible is loaded, isn't it, with this contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous. If you read the Proverbs, you read the Psalms, you discover that there are righteous people and then there are unrighteous people. And the contrast we often make between them is to our own satisfaction that I am not like the unrighteous, I am therefore righteous. But then you discover when you come to Isaiah 53 that everybody is unrighteous. That every single one of us is actually culpable and guilty before a holy God. And that this servant of Yahweh, this servant of the Lord who suffers, is actually suffering in the place of the unrighteous. And therefore, in my place, and in your place. And so this is what the prophet is concerned about. Lest you think you have any righteousness of your own, 
You will notice in Isaiah verse 53 verse 6, all we like sheep have done what? Gone astray. And we have all turned to our own way. Not to each other's way, it's to our own way. And we have gone astray. So the, the picture that Isaiah wants to just pummel us with, show us over and over again, is this picture of a substitute of someone in our place. Now I'm sure you've all read stories uh, in books or seen stories about those individuals who have died on behalf of others, who in war maybe dived on a grenade to save the lives of others, who threw themselves in front of danger to protect others and died as a result. But those are similar people dying for similar people. Here is an unsimilar person dying for people who are all the same, unrighteous, guilty of crimes beyond comprehension against a holy God. And this one, this servant comes along and says, I'll take their judgment. I'll bear their condemnation. I'll bear their wrath. This is what Isaiah is giving to us, verse after verse after verse. A suffering in the place of others, a suffering in their behalf, in their stead. And we call that, of course, as we shall see later on in the passage uh, of Isaiah 53, a penal substitutionary atonement. That's what Jesus did. He suffered the penalty, He suffered in our place, and He made atonement for our sins. And so it's a suffering on behalf of others who truly and fully and completely deserve to suffer. If you notice in verse 4 of 53, notice Isaiah's language, He bore our griefs, He carried our sorrows. Look at verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. So notice the language, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. At the end of verse 6, that all of our iniquities, they were laid on Him. He bore them for us. So the servant becomes a savior by becoming a substitute. He took our place and all those, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, he bore them on our behalf. Now you know when Jesus came to earth, when, when the Father sent him, as Galatians 4, 4 says, when the time was right, God sent forth his Son. That when Jesus came to earth, he was not at all what the Jews were expecting, was he? I mean, they had a vision and a concept of Messiah that was rooted in the likeness of David, the king. A mighty warrior, an excellent man, just a wonderful character, this man David, and his descendant, the future descendant, the future Messiah that comes from David, he's just going to be like him. And yet when Jesus comes, we discover from this passage before us this morning that nobody even knew that Messiah had come among them. And so the Jews were expecting a glorious, a glorious invasion, if I can put it like that, of one who would lead them to freedom from the oppression of Rome. Just like, just like God delivered Israel out of Egypt in the Old Testament. Just like God promised uh, a return to the land for the exiles in Babylon. That God would go before them. God would direct them. And God did all of those things. So in the minds of the people in the first century, in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, is this great expectation of a great warrior, a great deliverer, a great anointed one of God, the Christ. And they were expecting a deliverer then who would relieve them of their suffering, of their shame in bondage to Rome. But what they really were looking for and wanted was a political savior and not a spiritual savior. They wanted someone who would deliver them from the tyranny of Caesar and the Roman interference in their life at all levels. In fact, their desire for a spiritual savior is much like our own political desires today by many, many people. 
Many people still have hopes for some political salvation, some deliverance in our land, in our government, from our government that delivers us politically, that saves us in one sense. So whatever, whatever candidate is put forward, he must be this kind of character politically. He must be able to deliver us. That has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is not a political savior. He's only a spiritual savior. And by spiritual I mean he does something with regard to sin. Because sin is always a spiritual matter. Now remember, to the Jews, they were expecting Messiah. But to all the Gentiles in the world, well, what were they occupied with? They were occupied with their idolatry. That was their worship. Or to put it another way, they were in complete darkness and knew nothing about the facts that we find in the Word of God. They knew absolutely zero. They were blind. They were in darkness. They were in ignorance. And you know the shocking thing about that, though we can understand that because they never had a revelation from God, they did not see the Word of God, hear it read to them, so they remained in their darkness, yet they have this penchant to worship something. And that, of course, is because of the divine image placed in all of us, uh, placed in Adam at creation, comes to us. But the knowledge of God in the image of God is marred and defaced so that these Gentiles out there construct a worship system or an idol that will satisfy their religious desires and hunger. So they know nothing. But the shocking thing is that Israel, God's particular people were just like the Gentiles. They have God's Word. They have the oracles of God. They have all the covenant promises, and yet they behave just like Gentiles behave. They have idols, and they worship idols, and God has to send them into captivity to get rid of their idolatry. And what do we find when we consider or talk to people today that they have their own idols, their own spiritual idolatry within them that is God to them, that they worship and so on. And so Israel, like the Gentiles, is blind and deaf when Jesus came. They didn't recognize him when he came as Messiah. Not only that, they didn't receive him, certainly as Messiah, and that's what we find in these opening verses of Isaiah chapter 53. Now, will you notice with me that there are three things in these opening verses that we find here. First of all, we have the servant in verse 1 as unbelievable. The servant as unbelievable, verse 1. Secondly, we have the servant as undesirable in verse 2. And thirdly, we have the servant in verse 3 as unacceptable. So there you have three things, unbelievable, undesirable, and unacceptable. How is it possible that God's servant would fit into those three things of being unbelievable, undesirable, and unacceptable? So let's, will you consider with me, let's consider together verse 1, the servant as unbelievable. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, well, what do you mean, Russ, by unbelievable, Right? I don't mean the way we might say unbelievable, you know. That was just unbelievable. We mean by that, that was incredible. That was amazing. That was just something out of this world. That's not what we mean. That's not what I mean when I say the servant as unbelievable. What I mean is that in relation to the servant, and as far as the servant is concerned, he is not believed. He is not believed. He speaks and is not believed. He has heard and not believed. And in that sense, I use the word unbelievable. Because look what Isaiah says in verse 1. Who has believed our report? Or who has believed what he heard from us? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Who has believed our report? Who has believed what he heard from us? The answer is no one. No one has believed. No one has believed and this is, this is Isaiah the prophet expressing his personal dismay at the fact that there's no one who believes. How is that possible? How can there be no one who believes? Now we do know, don't we, that there are some, it would appear, 
who have believed and who do believe. But in Isaiah's mind, the prophet's mind, as he is thinking, he's thinking of all those people he talked about in chapter 52. And in chapter 52, verse 14 and verse 15, he talked about the many. And he talked about kings. And he talked about the nations. And those are the people that he's thinking about primarily here as they find this revelation made of the servant of Yahweh that they don't believe what the report about him is. So the report has been made, verse 1. And what are the reactions? The reactions are disbelief and unbelief. Now you ask, what's the difference between disbelief and unbelief? Disbelief is, cannot be. Unbelief is, I won't believe it. It's just impossible to be that. But on the other hand, I refuse to yield or to believe such things. And there has been a proclamation, right? Verse 1. What he has heard from us. Now Luther... He has an interesting understanding of this, and I'm inclined to think that he's right, because Calvin actually agrees with Luther on this point. That when Luther talks about the report or what has been heard, he means, Luther in his mind, means that Isaiah is talking about a revealing of the gospel, the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, or the preaching of the message. And you will notice that Isaiah says that this report, this message has been heard. Who has believed what he has heard? And to hear is to hear the message, to hear the report. I think the New American Standard says our message, and the, the King James and the New King James says our report. Whereas the ESV just says what has, he has heard from us. I like what Calvin says about this. He says that of those who hear the message, there is scarcely one in a hundred who will believe it. Of those who here have heard the message, scarcely one in a hundred will believe it. Now you know that, and I know that by personal experience, right? I mean, there's so few people who believe. Haven't you discovered that when you try to witness to people, to your loved ones, to your family, to your friends, to colleagues at work, to people you've never seen or met before? You try to share the gospel with them and you wonder to yourself, how can you not see? How is it possible that this glorious good news of forgiveness of sins, you just don't get it? How is such a thing possible? That's what Isaiah is thinking about. Who has believed our report? Answer, no one has believed our report. Now lest we get a little too heavy upon those who don't believe, remember at one time, you yourselves and I did not believe. Did not believe. So only a few believe. One of the themes you come across in Isaiah is this idea of a remnant. A remnant is just a small number of people who believe. That's how Isaiah uses it. That's how the Apostle Paul uses it in Romans chapter 11. When he talks about a remnant, he's thinking about Isaiah, what Isaiah said about a, rem a remnant. So we discover that actually only a few, a handful, scarcely one out of a hundred actually believe. Now you know we've, because we are reformed Christians, we're familiar with great revivals. Well, you ought to be familiar with great revivals. There have been great revivals in this country, great revivals in Britain and Ireland and Scotland and Wales and great revivals in Europe. Great revivals where hundreds, even thousands, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Large numbers. But I would remind you that that a revival is for a particular time and a particular season and then seems to fade away. But it's not the normal state of affairs to have a revival. It's only God who gives revival. You know how you see signs will be holding a revival here on Saturday? Well, who determined that? Right? It's only God who determines the outpouring or the giving of the Spirit in a mighty way of salvation. So for us to say that we will come up with a revival, of course, is false thinking. It's only God who revives. And God can do it in incredible reason, in, in ways. I like Calvin's thinking, you know, because this is what he says. He says the loftiness, the beauty, 
The glory of the message is the reason why it scarcely obtains credit in the world. It's too good. It's too great. It's too beautiful. It's beyond comprehension. This message, this preaching is so incredible, it's so wonderful, it cannot obtain credit in the world. Because the world thinks it's absolute folly. And that's because it exceeds their human capacities. They can't understand it. They can't believe it. And this is, the pre this is what, exactly what Paul says, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right? The preaching of the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now you can only know that because God enabled you to know that. By yourself you have no power to do that or to believe such a thing I mean think how difficult it was for the disciples to believe in Jesus as Messiah oh yes sometimes they just came out yes you are the Christ and then they would doubt and have no faith and Jesus would question them are you still unbelieving are you still hard of heart what is it about the disciples they walked with Jesus they heard Jesus they saw what he did and yet their hearts are so blinded by sin that they cannot perceive the rich glories of Christ when He's among them. So think of how difficult it was even for the disciples to believe. And think about the brothers of Jesus. I mean, the Bible just categorically says they didn't believe Him. They didn't believe Him. His own family, His own brothers, the, the physical progeny of Joseph and Mary, they didn't believe him, these half-brothers of our Lord Jesus. And then, of course, you have the Pharisees who just refused to believe that he could be Messiah. Refused to believe. You will notice in verse 1, it also says, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, look, if the first question is about the report or the proclamation, the preaching, then the second question is surely about the power and the revelation, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, the point of that is only God can make himself known, and only God can reveal himself by his power, by himself. So to believe the report, to actually believe what you have heard, is evidence that God has manifested himself or revealed himself to you. Isn't that a wonderful description of your salvation? That God revealed himself? That Christ made himself known to you? Isn't that Ephesians chapter 2? Verses 1 through 10? A people who were dead in trespasses and sins, who followed the course of this air, followed the prince and the power of this air, who did all these things, who by nature were children of wrath? How is it possible that they, being dead in their trespasses and sins, and under the wrath of God, suddenly come to believe? Suddenly have their eyes opened? Suddenly have their hearts softened? Suddenly have their minds illumined? How is that possible? Do they have the power to do that? No, they do not. Because the verse says, But God, being rich in mercy, and because of His great love for us, with which He has loved us, He saved us by grace. And then it goes on to say, We are saved by grace through faith, and it is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. What a glorious picture of our salvation, right? Our inability because of our death in sin, our deadness to spiritual matters, our blindness. And then this glorious revelation is made by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God. That's what the prophet is saying here. This arm of the Lord is that which reveals God Himself. And he's, a, he's, he's distinct, isn't he? This arm of the Lord phrase is very interesting, you know. In fact, if you look at chapter 51, just one chapter back, or two chapters back, look at chapter 51, verse 9 and 10. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? 
Was it not you who dried up the sea and the waters of the great deep? Was it not, oh, sorry, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You know, little choruses, by the way, are wonderful things to sing, right? And I have sung verse 11 thousands of times. The ransomed of the Lord shall return with singing, with joy. But I've never sung verse 9 and 10, which is part of it, right? How can they return without, with the singing unless there has been a power manifested by the Lord Himself in the arm of the Lord? And the description there is that He made the sea, the waters part, which of course is a reference to Israel being delivered out of the Red Sea as they crossed through it. How did that happen? By the arm of the Lord, by the power of God Himself. So what you find here in verse 1 of Isaiah 53 is this servant who is actually the arm of the Lord. To whom has the arm of the Lord, the Lord's power, been revealed? As a distinct person. But the arm of the Lord is actually the servant who exercises this power. And isn't that true, dear congregation? Unless the Lord reveals Himself to us, we cannot believe. Let alone will believe. We need Christ to manifest Himself to us, to show us to Himself, show us Himself. And why is that? Why do we need that? Why is it that unless God shows us, we will not believe? Why did they not believe? Who has, who has believed our report? Why didn't they believe? The answer to that is in the next two verses. They did not believe because verse 2, the servant is actually undesirable. And thirdly, they didn't believe because the servant is unacceptable. I mean, what kind of deliverer is this? He can't deliver us. He's weaker than us. He's less than us. How can he deliver? How can he actually save? So notice secondly in verse 2, the servant is undesirable. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What is Isaiah talking about? Why is the servant undesirable? Well, he's, referring, he's making reference to the birth of the servant and to the growth of the servant. The birth and the growth of the servant, the prophet says, appear to be unimpressive, appear to be unpromising. Now, you know, when Moses was born... He was of such a nature and such a character that his parents recognized that there was something about this child that was unique. And they did everything they could to save his life. You remember? Put him in the little ark of bulrushes and then sent him into the bulrushes until Pharaoh's daughter in the providence of God found him and he was brought up as an Egyptian, this man Moses. There was something about him that was special. His mom and dad, his parents, Jochebed and Amram, they saw that in that little baby in his face. And so they, they saw him as special, as unique. But when Jesus is born, he's unimpressive. And there's nothing to commend him. In fact, down the road in Bethlehem near Jerusalem is the palace of Herod. That's where Messiah should be born, right? But where do we find Messiah born? On the backside of a little village, Bethlehem, in a stable where the animals are kept and fed. That's where the King of Kings, where the Lord of Lords finds Himself. Unimpressive, right? Totally unimpressive. I'm sure that when, if you were to get into Harvard University or Yale University or Princeton, they would go through a rigorous assessment of your character and your background. Firstly, do you come from a good family? Do you have money? Uh, are you smart enough? And so on. They go through all these characterizations. And if you fulfill the criteria, in. If you don't fulfill the criteria, rejected. Same idea. Jesus comes, but he doesn't come with an impressive list of credentials to parade before Herod the Great and say, look, I've actually arrived now. Thanks for looking after my throne. You can step aside now. And that wasn't Herod's view either, was it? He sought immediately to destroy the Christ. Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. When he found that out, did everything he could 
to destroy him. So Jesus, or Messiah, or the servant from Isaiah 53, is unimpressive and unpromising. Notice how verse 2 begins, right? It begins with that little word, for. For he grew up. Now you know that's important, right? For he grew up, because you'll notice it's in the past. It's what we call a prophetic present. A prophetic present. Notice it introduces a verb in the past. What's the verb? He grew up. So notice, for he grew up. What is, what is Isaiah saying to us here? What Isaiah is describing for us is something that is so vivid and so certain to his mind that when he speaks of it, he speaks of it as already having taken place. It's as good as done. So when he says he grew up, it's as if that has happened, yet we all know Jesus is to be born six, seven hundred years in the future. So he's speaking with this prophetic present that the things that he's describing for us here are to Isaiah's mind already accomplished, already done. So certain are they to take place. And he speaks of them as if it's already happened. And yet Jesus is coming into this world. is still many centuries in the future. That's one of the great things about Isaiah, right? When he gives the great prophecies about Jesus, he's prophesying into the future about a coming one, about a deliverer. And so Isaiah says he grew up. And you'll notice in that same verse he talks about the fact that he had no form, no majesty, no beauty. When he grew up, that's what he was. No form, no majesty, no beauty. And notice he grew up before him. Who's the him? Well, that's God. He grew up before God or he grew up in the presence of God. And that, by the way, connects us to the fact that this one who grew up is actually the servant back in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant. It's the same person that he's describing here as the one who grew up. And the growing up of the servant appears to be of no consequence. Or to put it another way, to be ordinary. Now I can tell you all about an ordinary birth from my own perspective. Because the country I was born in doesn't actually exist anymore. Gone. It's not even a name. It's not even in the record books. It doesn't exist today. So, where I was born was actually two or three names before what is actually the current name of the country. I do have my birth certificate, which shows such ancient records of someone born in an obscure little town in Africa. Right? I have that record. You care nothing about that record, don't you? means nothing to me. It's unimpressive. And there I was growing up. Just a little guy in the blackness of darkest Africa. Right? That's what you would have thought of me. Well, you would never have heard of me anyway. Darkness. Unimpressive. Of no consequence. Messiah is growing up before or in the presence of God. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. It's as if he doesn't even exist. Do you remember how they asked when they heard Jesus and saw what he did in Matthew chapter 13? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother among us? And are not his brothers here with us? And they even list their names. James, Joseph, Simon and Jude. And are not his sisters with us? Because Jesus is, is doing these things that reveal him as other than who he seems to be by birth and by growth. So people dismiss Jesus as Messiah on the grounds that he came from Nazareth when he should have come from Bethlehem. But where did he come from, really? Bethlehem. Where was he born? Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And yet from Bethlehem where he was born, they immediately moved, as you know, into Nazareth, and Jesus grew up in Nazareth. They assumed, John chapter 7, verse 41, 42, that he came from Nazareth, therefore cannot be Messiah, when in reality, Jesus was born in the very place Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem. How beautiful, right? How wonderful, how glorious. So people dismiss him on the grounds of his, his unprepossessing characteristics. He doesn't meet the criteria. He doesn't look the, 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 look the, the, the fact. 
or whatever it is, the person. And so he is dismissed. You notice in verse 2 he appears as a young plant, or as some translations say, a tender shoot. He appears as a root out of dry ground or parched ground. Now what do you do with young plants? You protect them. As far as God is concerned, He protects the young plant as it grows. It is God's hand, the Father's hand, upon His beloved Son as He grows. Now you know, recently I, I bought two plants. They're clematis, or clematis, however you pronounce it, clematis. That are quite spectacular. And I was expecting them to be marvelous. And they arrived in a small pot. They were quite big, but they were broken because of poor shipping. You know, This is what we expect today, poor shipping. So my plants are broken. So I have, to, I have to cut them to get rid of this broken branches and all of that, to try and, to try and save them. Well now, they're like this high out of the pot. Because I've had to cut, cut, cut. Okay, but I've got a little bit of green growth. So I know there's life there. I do everything I can to protect them. I water them carefully. I keep them out of the burning sun. I, I take care of them. I do all of this. Think of how God protects His beloved Son. Right? If I'm prepared to do that for just a little plant, here is a shoot that comes from a royal line back to Jesse, back to David, this root, right, of Jesse and David and of Judah, this line of Messiah. And as he grows up in wisdom with God and with men and favor with God, it's the protecting care of God upon him. And you see the little phrase dry ground or parched ground? That's just simply a reference to the humble, lowly background and the obscurity of where Jesus came from. Where did he come from? Nazareth. You remember how Philip found Nathaniel? Said to him, We have found the Christ. We have found him. We have found Messiah. Well, where does he come from? No, he's from Nazareth. Nazareth! Remember Nathaniel? Nazareth! Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because the expectation of Nazareth was it was nothing. It's just a backwater of a village of no account. Obscure. What does all this tell us? tells us this, the servant is raised in humiliation. He is raised in conditions that do not befit him as the king of kings and as the lord of lords. Because roots and shoots in dry ground struggle to survive, don't they? So much so that this servant appears to have no power of himself and no power in himself, possessing no strength. Who would believe such a one? Who has believed our report. And dear congregation, when you go out and you share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then people don't believe, no, it happened to Jesus himself. Who would desire such a Messiah? Would you? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You'd be looking for a man of strength and a man of courage. A man to be victorious. A man with a record and a string of victories behind him. That's the man. Not Jesus. Quiet. Passed by as if he was no one. Obscure. Let me just tell you this. It is on that one that you have now set your hopes for everlasting life. That unprepossessing one. That obscure one. That's the one you've set your life's eternity on. On that Messiah. No one would look for deliverance from such a one, right? That's verse 2, right? This is what the world values as appealing, right? What does the world value? You've got to have money. If you want to be anybody in the, in the world, you've got to have some money. You've got to have the looks, Right? I mean, that's why we're so enamored with Hollywood, right? It's all about the looks and the money. And you've got to have power. You've got to have appeal. You've got to have all of those things for anybody to even consider you as of consequence. That's how the unbeliever sees Jesus. No consequence. Nothing. So presidents and prime ministers and kings and queens around the world, they have a glory but not Jesus when he comes because he veiled his glory 
hid his glory, left his glory to come to be this for us, right? This is what Isaiah is building up to. So his background, the background of Messiah is of no account. And his person, his qualities, appearance, they invite no consideration. What does that mean? It means people would pass Jesus by and he would be ordinary. Remember, he lived for 30 years before he entered his ministry. And nobody ever said in those 30 years, whoa, 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 that there's something about him that's unique and different. No, in fact, John the Baptist, Jesus passed by. And as he passed by, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They hadn't even given him a glance until John said, There he is. That's the man. And if they looked at him, they would have just seen a Jewish man with, with his Jewish clothing just walking the streets like anybody else. Passing Jesus by because he seems and looks insignificant and of no account. And isn't that what he implies when he says the servant has no beauty? Because you see, dear congregation, you walk by a beautiful man or a beautiful woman, you stop and are arrested and think, wow, but not Jesus. He had no beauty that we should desire him. None. Zero. You passed him by. How is it now that you love him so? How is that possible? Because we love beauty, we love power, we love that which we is esteemed by men. But it says here, doesn't it, in verse 3, we esteemed him not. Didn't even care, didn't even think about him. And the world passes by Jesus even this morning, doesn't it, with scarcely a glance at him. So Isaiah is describing the humiliation of the servant. No one looks at him. No one desires him. But that's not all. It's not just that he's undesirable. Look thirdly in verse 3. He is unacceptable. He's unacceptable. Now verse 3 is a, much, is a deeper description or a more detailed description of the responses to the servant. I mean, who would ever consider such a one as an acceptable leader? Because that's what a Messiah is, right? He's come to set his people free. He's come to lead them. So who would ever consider such a person, Isaiah? I mean, he's not attractive, verse 2. No one would follow him. But here, he's even ridiculed. And he is rejected. He is shunned. People shy away from him. People simply pass him by. I mean, look at the language. To be despised and to be rejected are active verbs. This is what people did. Despised him rejected him, just ignored him, passed him by. He's just nothing, of no account. Hardly gave him a glance for 30 years. He has no special dignity. He's not like Moses. He deserves to be scorned. I mean, think of how Pilate treated Jesus. Who are you? Are you a king? Who are you? Think of how Herod saw Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus, didn't he? He wanted to see a miracle done by Jesus, and Jesus did nothing. Like a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth, which went all the way through his sufferings to the cross even. And think of the Roman soldiers, how they treated him, how they plucked the hair from his beard, which is one of the most painful, excruciating things that can ever happen. Not only that, but they spat upon him, and they mocked him, and they put a cloak over his head. And then they said, now prophesy, you Messiah, who smote you? This is the divine Son of God. Standing as a man who appears to be nothing before humanity. They reject him. They despise him. Jesus truly was the man of sorrows, wasn't he? I mean, we sing that hymn, man of sorrows. He was. Not morosely sorrowful. I don't mean that Jesus was morosely sorrowful in his life, but in the sense that he shares in the sufferings and the pain and the griefs of others. Surely he has borne our griefs, our sorrows. He shared in them, in his humanity. Jesus knows what grief is. Jesus knows what it's like to grieve. Jesus knows what loss is. Jesus knows what it's to suffer loss. Jesus when somebody said, 
Where are you going? Show us where you live. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. No place to call home. No home with a mortgage. Nothing. Nothing. And yet the whole world was his home. Because he made it. And yet now he comes among those who are called his own. And they reject him. And they despise him. Right? Verse 3 says, Men hid their faces from him. One of the commentators whom I really like, Edward Young, he said this, he says, We found him so revolting to look at because of the griefs and the shame that characterized him that we turned our faces away from him as though he were stricken with some repulsive disease. That's what Isaiah is saying. And we don't really think like that. But that's what the prophet is saying about the servant. Verse 3 is all about unbelief, isn't it? He's not esteemed by any. He's despised by all. Isn't that the unbelief of the world today, of everyone today? I mean, men and women today may some say some nice things about Jesus. They are prepared to say some very nice things about his ethics, for example, or his, his own personal example was amazing, people will say. I mean... Treat others as you would have them treat you. Do good unto others. And, and all these things that Jesus said. Love your enemies. And so on. Wonderful things. They think about his teaching. Well, it was excellent. He was a good man. Yes. He was a great prophet. It's true. He has answers to all the social problems of his time. And we can use that today. But just let Jesus accuse them of their sin. Just let him point out their sins. And they shun him and want nothing to do with him. That's why when you share the gospel, when you witness and you get that kind of reaction, it's because of that. Men and women do not want to be confronted with their sin and their culpability before God and their guilt before God. Nobody wants that. There was a time when you didn't want that and I didn't want that. You see, because unbelievers never acknowledge their guilt they deny that they deserve eternal punishment. They reject a vicarious sacrifice in their place for their sins. Because that will mean they have to give up their sin. That will mean that they have to stop their sins. And they don't want to do that. What they really want is to continue living in sin. Pleasing themselves. Refusing to acknowledge that they themselves have to satisfy the justice of God against them. And they cannot. Because only Jesus satisfied that justice. So they refuse to be reconciled to God. That's how they reject Messiah. That's how they reject the servant. That's how they despise the servant of Yahweh. The same servant. So because Jesus appears as unbelievable as undesirable, as unacceptable. He's not believed, he's not received, he's not esteemed. Can you not see from all of this that unless Jesus comes to you, you will never go to him. Unless Jesus comes to you, you will never go to him. Do you sit here this morning and say, I see with my spiritual eyes, I see Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth, they will just fade, won't they? In the light of His glory and His grace. So, unless Jesus comes to you, you won't come to Jesus. You can't come to Jesus until He comes to you. So if you are here this morning and you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, how glorious, how rich, how joyful that must be for you, right? Because that means Jesus came to you and opened your eyes and softened your heart and gave you a believing heart. You see how misguided and corrupt unbelief has made us? And continues to make us, even if we, today we don't believe. 
Unless the arm of the Lord is revealed, we remain spiritually dead in sins and trespasses. We we remain spiritually bankrupt. We remain without God and without hope in this world. Unless Jesus comes. But isn't that what Isaiah is saying? Jesus came. Jesus came to you. Jesus came to me. You see, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is a stumbling block to the Jews and he is foolishness or folly to the Gentiles. They are blind by their sin, whether Jew or Gentile. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive. That's amazing grace, isn't it? That's what it means to be saved. It's grace. It's amazing grace. The word of the cross, the preaching of the cross, is foolishness to all who are perishing. You can't change that. Only Jesus can change that. And to us who are being saved, it is this ongoing power of God. Now, I close with this thought. Why is it that to many people out in the world, we Christians, and I say we Christians, all of us, seem mediocre to them, seem ineffective to them. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be a Christian. Why would I want to be a Christian? Look at those Christians. They think they're righteous. They think they're, they're almost without sin. You see, I think that's, that's how we've conveyed ourselves. Almost as if we are self-asserting, self-demanding, self-righteous to the world's eyes. Jesus never came and self-asserted himself and demanded until he revealed himself at 30 years of age. And so, perhaps it's because to some extent we really don't believe that God works through weakness. Because you see, we think he works through strength. So I must be strong. And when I'm strong, then he can use me. No, 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 no. Paul says, when I think I'm strong, that's when I'm actually nothing, weak. And that's what God uses. God uses the weakness, the folly, the foolishness of what you believe to win others to himself. And that's how you must portray your life to others as a servant who is willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, for the sake of God. Unless you're willing to suffer as a servant, why would anybody else believe that Jesus suffered for them? They won't. They might see you as arrogant, self-righteous, whatever it might be. No! If you want to be first, you must be last. You must take the humble place. And that's no easy thing to do when you're trying to speak to your loved ones or to your friends or to your colleagues. Uh, We are a two complaining people. We are. We complain about this and we complain about that. We're not willing to be wronged. We're not willing to suffer. Why not suffer the wrong? That's what Paul asked. Why not? Why not suffer the wrong? Why assert yourself? Why demand your rights? No, be like Jesus, right? Are we willing to sacrifice ourselves? Or are you willing to just hold back something? Because that might expose you as weak. And frankly, yes, it will. But it's that's exactly how the gospel wins. Through our weakness and through the power and the wisdom of the servant of God. That's the preaching of the cross. The cross is folly to those who cannot see, won't see, refuse to see. But to us, oh, it's what a revelation, right, of God's power to us and wisdom to us in saving us by the servant who suffered, was despised and rejected. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the glorious truths of the suffering servant of Yahweh. For your servant, Father, our Savior, our Lord Jesus, who came so long ago for us, who is the fulfillment of all of Isaiah's prophecies. We see it 
we read it, we cherish it, we believe it, we confess it to be true because you've opened our eyes. You've saved us by grace, not by our will or willing or power, but just simply by your mercy and grace for us because of your love for us. And why would you love us? It's beyond comprehension because we were rebels and we were sinful and we despised the servant. So help us this morning to truly rejoice in our salvation and more than that to rejoice in our Savior and our Lord who has done this for us. Help us to see Jesus as he really is and for what he has done for us. So we pray that your word might work its way in our hearts and minds this morning, this day, and that you would send us forth from this place refreshed, strengthened in Christ alone. So we praise you and we worship you and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now if you'll take your black hymnals and turn to number 3, 8, 